most of what I spend my days doing is working with students who intend to go into health professions. And I'm trying to help them to understand the reality of the experiences of patients and their families before they ever become a healthcare professional, because I think that will help them to begin to close that communication gap that I observed when I was a patient, when I was a caregiver. Hard work, work. Hard work. That's what they say. Hard work, work. Hard work. I earn my pay. Hard work, work. Hard work. Do it every day. Welcome once again to another work ethic podcast. And I am here today with Dr. Lindy Davidson and just a couple kind of like highlight bio things. So um, I just pulled these right off of your, your bio online. So you're still in the Judy Grinshaft Honors College, right? Judy Genshaft Honors College. Is I say that right? Grenshaft? Grenshaft, say it. Genshaft. There's no Genshaft. R. There's no R. Genshaft. Former president out. of USF. Genshaft. Yes. I should know that. And are you a dean now? I'm an associate dean. Associate dean. Still, still coming up that ladder. So a uh, couple couple things here. Um, so you have a BA in uh, communication arts and you did a minor in religion also, right? That's right. Um, an MDiv at Reformed. Theological Seminary. That is correct. That'll be interesting to circle back to. And then a PhD in communications, and you focus in on health communications. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So why don't you do this? So, so for those listening, look, Lindy and I are friends. We know each other. We've done some stuff together. I'm just excited to have squirreled away some time to hang out and catch up, right? Uh, but I also want to like walk through this as like a, like, I really want to have this kind of conversation around what we've been doing with the work ethic and hear about your work and your relationship with work. But why don't you go ahead and beyond the, the, you know, the LinkedIn profile, just like, who are you introduce yourself a little bit deeper. <laughs> um, one time I was at like this women's retreat thing and they wanted us I think we were to write a poem about who we are. And the first lines that came to me were um, farm girl, farm girl, never, ever a glam girl. <laughs> and so maybe that's, <laughs> okay. I don't know. Um, I, I grew up in a, a small town in Kentucky or medium town by Kentucky standards. So I grew up in Paducah, Kentucky on a farm, went to a rural high school, graduated in a class of 123, uh, but with some pretty high achieving peers as it later turned out. So my classmates graduated from Duke Law School and are, you know, civil engineering leaders hmm. and, you know, water systems and NASA scientists who now teach, you know, literally like rocket science. So, so that's pretty cool to have been raised and to grow up with these as my, like these peers of mine, um, because I think we really did challenge one another to, to reach higher and higher for things. But um, I graduated from high school as a, the salutatorian. So second mm-hmm. place, I have like a um, kind of a running theme of second place. It was the second child, you know. And All right, all right. <laughs> so second to, to um, get the high scores in, in high school. And then I went to Belmont University in Nashville, which is where the debates were hosted last night, actually. Oh, really? So my alma mater. Uh-huh. Okay. And um, so I entered college wanting to be a um, public relations professional for a major league baseball team that was my goal obviously um yeah i mean isn't that what every 
18 year old girl wants to be. Yeah. Yeah. But my dad was a baseball coach and a scout for the Cincinnati Reds. And mm. I had grown up around baseball. I'd been an umpire, played softball. I was just very excited about, uh, about the game. And so I thought this would be a way that I could be a part of that because I had worked in the newspaper. I was the editor of my high school newspaper and enjoyed writing and uh, like the mass comm kind of journalism thing. I always enjoyed writing, like creatively writing particularly. So I started down the road in that journalism major and it just wasn't as much fun as I kind of, the, the journalism world and what was, what was being asked of me wasn't exactly thrilling me. Mm -hmm. um, but I discovered a kind of, um, I don't know, I was just kind of enlivened to the larger world. Um, the, when I was in middle school, I had traveled with my dad's baseball team to Puerto Rico. And it was the first time I ever spoke Spanish for a purpose. Mm. Like I wanted to communicate something to someone and the person didn't speak English and I knew the word in Spanish. And so I said it and it like allowed me to see that there was another world out there. There's another way mm. to communicate, another way to express myself. And that was really exciting. Um, it's, it's really kind of funny that that like that one little encounter had so much meaning. I was probably in eighth grade and I said oh. the word pun, I mean one syllable, but the woman knew what I meant. And so I found this access to another language. And so then the summer after my freshman year in high school, I spent the whole summer in Springdale, Arkansas, which is in the Ozarks with a family who were from El Salvador. So okay. I spent the whole summer working with them he was the pastor of a congregation, actually of like two or three different congregations of people in that area. Um, and I got to know um, a lot of migrant families and um, people who had come to the US uh, looking for more opportunities and were struggling through to figure out what that looked like and living with this family who had um, escaped from, uh, they, they came to the U S for political asylum. Because the, they contra, were the contra wars and things like that. Yeah. Is that about the timeline? Their son who was six when they came over had, um, a scar from a gunshot wound. Yeah. So this was, yeah, very, very scary. Um, their life had been, so it kind of opened my eyes up to other things happening in the world and really built this skill set of, you know, Spanish speaking and understanding other cultures and, um, so I went back to school and I realized I still had these communication skills that I wanted to develop, but that maybe I didn't want to work as a PR, you know, executive. And I didn't necessarily want to do that in, um, in a, a for-profit kind of institution. I wasn't interested in climbing the business ladder. Yep. So I just kept going to school. I picked up a religion minor and I graduated with the want to do more. So then um, I went and worked in a church as a youth minister for a couple of years in Texas and decided that I ran out of that religion minor real quick. Like all I knew was, was taken up in those couple of years. And so I went to seminary and in between all that, by the way, I also got married. So I got married after my junior year in, high, in college, in high school. In okay. College. All right. All right. Um, and so my husband and I went back to Texas where he's from and then 
we moved to Florida because we were both interested in seminary. And so did he also go to seminary? Yeah, he did. But um, then stuff happened. So I went sure. together. We went, we started together. He decided someone should probably make money so that we could like pay the rent and stuff. So he, he had a teaching certification by that point. So he went back to school or went back and started teaching full time so that we could yep. you know, eat and stuff. It's important like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, after three years in seminary, I graduated and he started back full time. I was working. I got pregnant with our first son and then everything blew up um, when I went for my sonogram and they told us there were huge problems. So Mm. that's when our world took a very, very different uh we just everything came into a very different focus by that point. Yeah. So I don't remember what the question was, but this I, is good. This is no, thanks for just rolling. I'm like, yeah, I was like, introduce yourself. And I'm like, there's and 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 I think, well, so had you yeah, there's so much there was so much there that we need to kind of circle back to, but um just there where you ended, um did had you finished seminary and and then got pregnant yeah yeah mm-hmm. so i graduated in 2001 uh may of 2001 right before 9-11 yep um and then will was born in june of 2002 okay by march of 2002 there were there were things that we knew were not good i was hospitalized april 15th of 2002 he was born on June 3rd. So that made me a, a patient for seven weeks in a hospital. Um, which if, if you think the pandemic is every day the same, try living in a hospital for seven weeks. Yeah. Feeling physically pretty much fine, but having this like kind of peril inside of you. And, you know, the only the menu changed. It was, and it didn't change very often. It was pretty bad. So it was very, it's a very odd time in my life, but I learned things as a patient in the hospital that you cannot learn in a school or any Mm -hmm. other way. I mean, there is an education that is afforded to some people that other people just will not have access to. And I don't mean in an institution necessarily. I mean like this, just an experience that no doctor, you know, has this kind of an experience of being in that bed yet they're called to have to, deal with these you know situations which is what brought me to my phd program yeah that makes sense like how to communicate around some of these topics and listen yeah. to patients and so i also spent just under seven weeks in the hospital i think when i had my car accident now i did not feel mostly well um so i spent a good chunk of that time just on drugs basically you know pumped full of painkillers and this and that um but to this day have these very strange feelings when I walk through a hospital. Um, like it's not my, it's not a place I really want to be. Right. Like I learned to be like, I'm good. I could tough anything out, but there is like a mental thing I have to do in a hospital to this day where I'm like, okay, I'm good. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let that happen, but there's something trying to happen when I'm in a hospital to this day. I have kind of the opposite response. Maybe. Yeah was a patient and then I was the caregiver of a patient. Yeah, sure. So I was in there for seven weeks, but Will was in there for four and a half months 
and then neonatal intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. So every day I went home and then I came back mm -hmm. and then I get up in the middle of the night and I call the hospital and see how he was doing. Yeah. And the next morning I would get up and I would drive in to, or we were in Orlando at the time, drive into Orlando, spend all day at his bedside, turn around, go back home. So I did that for four and a half months, um, every single day. Wow. And, um, and it gave me this incredible familiarity with this place is a place that I just come and go. I, mm. I mean, there are people who work in that hospital now who probably do not know parts of it that I know, yeah. even with remodels and all these different things, you know, like I just, there are back stairwells and places I could find and, and traverse. Um, but then, you know, so, so Will is 18 now. So this is obviously yeah. you know, a long time ago. Yeah. After him, we thought, well, that was so much fun. We should have more kids. So we had two more kids. Uh, yeah. Um, they did not have to go in the NICU. In fact, they were like over nine pounds each at birth. I mean, yeah. <laughs> trauma in another direction. But um, but they were healthy and, and well. And when my youngest son went to kindergarten, I uh, that was the day I started my PhD. Um, I dropped him <laughs> off at school and I drove to Tampa. <laughs> so, I love this. But in the few years like prior to that, I told my husband one day, I remember I said, you know, in 20 years, I'm going to go back and get a PhD and do something about this, you know, all these communication problems in the hospital. And he said, why are you going to wait 20 years? Why don't you go now? He may regret those words. I'm not sure. But, <laughs> but I took him to heart and I started looking around and I found a really great health communication program in my backyard. Yeah. And I was like, well, I can, I can go there. And so mm. I started studying. Um, my, my PhD work really focused on families and how families navigate uh, health and healthcare. And then um, my dissertation was on how parents make decisions about seriously ill hospitalized children based on their spiritual frameworks. So that's a pretty specific area, but yeah. I, so, so I want to get into a million things you've said. So we're going to need to like start picking back at some of this, okay, but, awesome. but like, no, 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 please keep talking. Um, but I want to ask you, cause even as you said, how, how parents navigate this healthcare system, how they make these hard decisions based on their spiritual framework. And the question that I had as you went from seminary, so youth pastor seminary, kind of have this like maybe a year trying to work and then you have this child and you go, well, everything changed. Um, now I, I don't know like what that, I can't imagine what that was like for you as an, as an experience, but from my own experience of pain and struggling and hospitalization and trauma and whatever, I know that it was very hard to deal with in general. And and I'm just curious, like, how, how did you handle that in regard to your spiritual framework? Like, was that, was that, did that feel like it was dying? Did that support you through it? Like, talk to me about, like, you got prepped for this season, maybe, right? But what happened for you? Yeah, so, you know, they talk about, um, you know, the space between your head and your heart is roughly like 18, it's probably more like 15 on me, I'm not very big. So, um, you know, I went to seminary because I've, I have this insatiable curiosity. And in my family, you go to school to figure stuff out. Yeah. You know, I mean, my parents were always in school, getting another degree, doing another thing. 
you know, we lived out in the country in Kentucky, but my parents both have master's degrees. My mom had education beyond that. I mean, they just were always going to school. And so I wanted more. Um, my, my faith was very strong and active and I, I wanted to dig deeper and I'm a thinker and, and I loved theology. I had a little taste of it in my minor and in my undergrad. And so mm. I was like, I want more of that. So I went to school um, and I learned so much and it was really, it was a really lovely time for me because I had grown up in the church and heard the stories, you know, like all the stories that yeah. you, you've ever been to Sunday school, you know, you get like Moses in the water in the basket and then mm. you get like the burning bush story, which is, you know, also Moses, but you don't even necessarily realize it because they're told to you in these like very individual. And then here's the behavior that you're supposed to learn from this story, boom, done over. And so you don't, you don't see how all of this fits together. Mm -hmm. And seminary helped me to see a much larger kind of organizing principle of how everything fit together into a, a larger story of um, identity and dignity and pursuit and love and, um, and forgiveness and hope and joy. And I mean, it was, it was a very rich time for me. I really loved, um, the people I was in school with and the professors that I was able to sit. We have one professor who would sit out, um, outside with us at some tables on our break from class and our break would end up being like 30 minutes long because we'd get into some conversation that was just deep and meaningful. And he'd be like, oh, look at the time. We got to go back to class. And You're really it. easy to do that with too, by well. the way. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could see that happening. I have been told that I have the gift for gab, but, you know, I think that may go, you know, on the other side <laughs> of life too, so. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, anyhow, it was a great time, but nothing had ever happened to me. There'd never been any major trauma in my mm-hmm. life. My grandparents were all still alive. I mean, I didn't lose a grandparent until I was at over 30. Um, and so like everything was just like, nothing was super easy, but nothing was really traumatic or hard in my life. We had food to eat. We had a house that was old and kind of scary at times, but it was a roof. Um, and so it was not, there's just nothing nothing to really apply to the hardship. I remember reading second Corinthians with my classmates about, you know, struggle and sacrifice and pain. And I just couldn't relate. Yeah. And then right. <laughs> I got, I got faced with the, the largest challenge of my life. Um, you know, you find out you're going to have a baby and this is like this life and you suddenly feel responsible and out of control. And then you find out now that this life is threatened and you really feel responsible and out of control. And so I had to decide laying in that hospital bed, if I really could lean on the thing that I said, I believe Like, did it really matter when life got hard and the rubber hits the road now. Yeah. And what I found was that it really did because there was nothing left of me. Yeah. Like I had nothing left of my own steam by that point. And I mean, I can muster a lot of steam for a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just barrel through life 
super enthusiastic, like there's a, you know, a positive to be found in everything and um, very optimistic. But then in, in that bed when, I mean, we had a doctor tell us that our baby could be born, take one breath, his lungs would explode and he would die. That's a hard thing to swallow. Yeah. So we were hearing things like this all the time. And, and I was just like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I have to know that like my circumstances don't change like the full scope of what reality is and what truth, you know, is. And so I had to just lean on what I, what I had learned to be true, what I said I believed to be true. And, um, and that was really basic stuff like that, you know, that I was loved, that I was capable of loving other people, um, that no matter what happened, that there was still um, an opportunity for me to be blessed and be a blessing um, and to be related to people and to, you know, make good on an opportunity that was my life. So um, the way I describe it oftentimes is that I had lived as though we live in a square room, like if life is a square room, but that the square room is lit by a circle so that, you know, you only know what's going on in the circle of light. And there are these four dark corners yep. and we just stay in the light because we want to be in a place where we're familiar and we know what's going on. That's right. And it was as though someone grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and shoved my face in the corner. And what the fear is, is that, you know, well, God exists in this little circle of light and good things are here in this circle of light, but don't you dare get out of it. And when I had my face shoved into the corner, what I realized wasn't that, that like God would follow me into the corner and be with me there too. It was that he was already there. Like I already had comfort and hope and security, even in places where I couldn't see what was going on. Yeah. Um, and so that was, that was really kind of like the enactment of, of what I believe to be uh, true and, and, and the moment that I had to, had to say, well, faith means like stepping out when you don't know what's going to happen. Right. And I'd always felt like I knew it was going to happen. So now that I don't know what's going to happen, can I actually walk this way? Let me, let me jump from that. Cause you saying like, I really don't know what's going to happen. And, and you've, you've, painted the picture of like okay well i had will and then i had these two other like two other kids you even said like they were big and trauma in another direction or whatever but like like kids is a good example of like there's a there's something about an open receptivity of a gift right there's like i am going to receive something i don't know what's going to happen right um and and okay so this is going to be a bit maybe weird of a transition but i i watched a your like video online uh your bio video on the usf website okay all right you said something that reminded me of something else so i want to start okay. with the something else because that something else is on this point of not knowing what you're going to get which is forrest gump he says uh life's like a box of chocolates That's you right. never know what you're going to get and, and there's something cool about that, right? There's something like, okay, it's, that's true. You don't know what you're going to get. Um, and there's a certain openness, a certain vulnerability to that, a certain openness to surprise, a certain sobriety about reality. There's something really cool about that. And people love Forrest Gump, whatever. 
But what you said stood out to me. Do you remember what you said life is like? Okay. It's like a construction. Yeah, it's like a construction site. And, and I immediately thought of Forrest Gump and put those in conversation with each other because that has, well, will and determination and intentionality and looking at what's the blocks. So you said, oh, you have lots of different blocks and some seem like they don't fit and some do fit. And so I, I, as I look at your, even as the, just the profile we read in the beginning going communications, theological seminary, and I'm like, okay, preacher. Uh, right. And then you're like, I had this life experience, health communication. Okay. Teacher. Like there, there's a way in which it kind of makes sense, but they also don't. If you just look at the list, you're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and, and so I was wondering, like, I wanted to ask you just one to present that to you as like a contrast a muse on as these two true proverbial type statements. Um, and then just talk to me about, I don't know what is within, cause it reminds me of the serenity prayer, like do what you can with what is in your control and you are vulnerable to what is outside your control. And I just, I don't know. I wanted to like put that back to you that way to go. Yeah. Continue to like expound on that. So, um, and often I teach with Legos. So okay. have, if, you could, if you could see me right now, I'm in a very colorful setting, which I like bright colors. I also teach on end of life. So I have to offset that a little bit sometimes, but um, yeah, I do. I do like the image of life being like a construction site um, because that is when I look back on my life, like things make perfect sense to me. Most of what I spend my days doing is working with students who intend to go into health professions. And I'm trying to help them to understand the reality of the experiences of patients and their families before they ever become a healthcare professional, because I think that will help them to begin to close that communication gap that I observed when I was a patient, when I was a caregiver. Mm. And, and I'm still a, a caregiver, you know, and still sometimes a patient, like aghast at the things that, that may happen. But I could not have written this story. Like, mm. there is no way I could have come up with this topsy-turvy path that I have been on. But yeah. when I look back on it, it does make sense to me. Yeah. I see how um, there, the, the opportunity for this theological education, which I kind of thought was going to get sidelined when I started my PhD program at a large mm -hmm. public university mm -hmm. that I wasn't even sure was going to accept this master's of divinity. What kind of um, degree is that? Yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. Well, you studied God. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. And you yeah. say, well, I learned Greek and Hebrew. Then they start to go, okay, okay, never mind, never mind. <laughs> yeah, I got my Latin. That'll overlap, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I, when I started looking into potential PhD, um, dissertation topics, I had a, a palliative care physician tell me, we really need someone to look at the spirituality aspect of families and how that matters to them when they're going through this. And you have this whole master's of divinity, so you should be well equipped to do that. And I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. after all. So yeah. uh, the palliative care team, like, which is who I shadow for my dissertation, the, a chaplain is a member of a palliative care team. And they're looking at like holistic care for seriously ill patients. So you have social workers and chaplains and 
physical therapists and nurses and doctors all kind of coming together to support this whole like family system um, around a complicated illness. It was something I didn't have access to when my kid was sick, but now exists yeah. in a lot of hospitals yeah. for children, which is really great. I mean, it exists for adults too, but, but for children, it's a really great service. And so when I realized how that piece fit, it was kind of an aha moment. Like I could make sense of it in my own personal life, but how this was going to matter for anybody else, yeah. I wasn't really sure. <laughs> um, but being able to talk to um, these parents who were struggling, I realized how important this was. I mean, it was spirituality was clearly very important to me. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't I think it would be important to a lot of other people too? Um, and, and it was in different, in different, from different faiths and different ways, but I could see how it's kind of this ongoing theme throughout everyone that I talked to, they were leaning on something beyond just the medical science. Yeah. Um, and so it made a lot of sense that I think everyone's life can make sense in this way. Um, if you look at what you have had delivered to your construction site that you didn't really want there. Like we have agency, especially in the United States. I mean, we, we prize our independence and freedom and, you know, we say you do you and I'll do me and all of that. And I think there's a lot of issues with that and a lot of problems that we create for ourselves in trying to be so independent. Um, but what we have is a lot of freedom to choose what we want. I chose my college major. I chose to go to seminary. I chose to get my PhD. These are things that I wanted to do. And I have brought these blocks to my construction site with, in some cases, extreme effort. But then other things get brought to you. You know, someone in your family gets really sick or you're, you know, your house floods. There's a natural disaster of some kind. Your best friend goes through a trauma and you get completely entrenched in that. I mean, we cannot control the phone call that's going to come five minutes from now, it's just not possible. And so we can't just eschew those things as not being a part of my plan. I think it's much better for us to look at that and say, okay, I didn't expect that, but, but where does it fit? You know, I have to, I have to accept it, whether I expected it or not. I have to accept that this is a reality and so how can I move forward with this reality in a way that, you know, claims it as something that is mine to live with, but that maybe is going to help somebody else, or maybe is just going to be something that is hard for me. But if I acknowledge it, it'll be a lot more palatable for me to, to move forward than if I pretend like it's not there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that matters in terms of work too, to kind of come back to, yep your theme, I spent 11 years not working, you know, but I was working harder than I'd ever worked in my life. You don't get paid to go to the hospital and sit by a bedside every day for four and a half months. In fact, it's incredibly expensive to do that. Um, you know, we, we were fortunate enough that, you know, a, a preterm baby qualifies for Medicaid and, um, you know, we had, access to private insurance through the generosity of a couple of employers who were also nonprofits, but managed to make it work for us. Mm. Um, But in the amount of time that I lost the opportunity to earn income for my family, and I spent over $500 in tolls 
the year that that will was born i mean it's expensive to do that but that work did not go um it, it wasn't it wasn't for nothing like right. that informs every single class that i teach right now i would not be sitting in this office I would not be in my classrooms. I would not have relationships with my students. I wouldn't lead trips to the Dominican Republic with students on, you know, on medical trips. I wouldn't do any of that if all of this hadn't happened. Yeah. And it was work. It was working towards something in my life. It's not just me working. Life is working. Um, mm. And I think that that is important to acknowledge when you, like, for for my students who feel like um life will begin when they become a doctor um it's just not true everything that's happening right now is life this yeah. is informing who you become tomorrow and the next day and the next day i'll stop talking now because it's just running on at the mouth you no know, this is so good so yeah um let me pit there's like too much uh let me pick up on the students for a second um, because, you know, I don't know, and maybe this is presumptuous, but these medical students, life will begin when they're a doctor. I just think of students I've interacted with, there's like a fast track to a well-paying job that in, in many, many ways, it's in a field of helping and care working in a place named after words like hospitality. Um, and yet that isn't necessarily the spirit with which all of those students are aiming at those goals. Right. Um, and, and, and just being young, like part of just all of us, when we're young, we're kind of into ourselves and we're thinking about what's good for us and life hasn't happened to us in that way. And, um, and, and, and I know, I know you're trying to do something like I see when I've you and I have been, you know, you were doing, so we'll run through some things you did like this pre-college thing that you, we worked together and we could talk about that in a little bit. But like I saw, I watch you go, I'm trying to impact these students in a way that affects the trajectory of their college experience. And then I hear you talk about what you're trying to do in engaging with students as you know they're going into these fields and you go, I had this experience in there. So God forbid you get there and you're like this, right? Like I have something, I have a role to play here in shaping tomorrow's hospitals or whatever or care units. Um, what's that like? Like how, you know, how, talk to me about that work in the interpersonal with students. Cause like my experience, I worked with college students for a long, long time and still overlap with them tremendously as volunteers and things like that. And go, there's like people that are very open, people that are very like receptive to leadership. And then there's knuckleheads, right? There's people that's like, man, I, I don't know how to crack this nut. And, <laughs> and, and yet you have like some kind of a responsibility there. And I, I don't know, I just would like, like there's enough in what you said before this. I want to keep kind of coming back to that. If I can, my memory can do that. But like, uh, can you just speak to this job of engaging students with this like fire and passion and conviction you have? Uh, I can only imagine the despair in certain interactions with actual college students. 
Well, okay. First of all, <laughs> I'm incredibly spoiled by the college students we have in the Judy Ginshaft Honors College. So I love my students. Now, can they be knuckleheads sometimes? Yes, they can. You are I was gonna say I met some of them. You're not gonna kid me. You can do your PR thing, but I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you more questions. Go on. Yeah, so, <laughs> so it can be a they they're everybody has their, you know, points of frustration or difficulty. Um I would a few things that I really love about this particular location of Tampa mm -hmm. is the diversity that's represented here, but also the um, the sense in which, like, if you were to go to some other schools and meet the students who were pre-med, who were, you know, top of their class, cream of the crop, uh, high test scores, this is, you know, which, which is what makes up our group, you would probably find a lot of kids who grew up very similarly um you know upper middle class to upper class students who had been afforded a lot of opportunity mm -hmm. our students are not defined by that mm -hmm. um many of our students are first generation americans um, they have had a very different life experience. Some of them have, are actually, I, I have a student who became a citizen while in my class. Like, um, this is in, in the global awareness and different cultural understandings of what it means to, to be a student, what it means to be a professional is really enriching because anybody who has grown up with that privilege kind of gets awakened to the fact that everybody didn't grow up like that because they get to hear other stories and other ways of understanding. And we also have a lot of students who are from our area and who are still responsible for like caring for another member of their family who have, um, you know, to work while going to school because otherwise they won't be able to afford to be here. Mm. And so they have a different relationship with what it means to be a student and what it means to have a career and have earning potential down the road. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that as a difference of our students, but most of our students come to me and say, well, I want, I want to help people. Mm. Like I hear this as a common refrain. I yeah. want to help people. I want to be a doctor and I want to help people. Mm -hmm. And I love that because it's an opportunity for me to dispel the myth that just because you're a doctor doesn't mean that you're always doing it to help people. Or that you are actually helpful. <laughs> or that you're actually helping people. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so we, we look at like, well, what does that mean? Help people's really big kind of umbrella hopefully we're all helping people right why wouldn't we want to do that with everything we do in life and so so we began to break down you know mm. kind of like well what is what does that mean and the the best thing that i do is to take them away from this place and go introduce them to someone else who helps people in a way that just blows their mind and that's i mentioned the dominican republic earlier mm -hmm. uh, so I have partnered with, or Honors College has partnered with an initiative in the Dominican Republic with a physician, Reginald Carroll. So Dr. Carroll has the Carroll Initiative for Community Health, and he and his team go to 
rural and impoverished areas around the north coast of the DR in order to um, bring medical care to people who otherwise would not receive it, but then also to engage with them to improve their quality of life through education, through um, putting concrete floors in people's homes that are living on dirt, through um, you know providing nutrition, community gardens, like any number of different ways, water filtration systems. Like he's a public health worker. Like this is what he does. He's just, his lens is, how do I help the whole community be healthier? And that's really the, the frame of public health, not just physician. But most of our students don't come to school thinking, I'm gonna go work in public health because they don't know what that is. They know what a doctor is. But most students come to college thinking it could be one of about five different things. You could be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, or whatever your parents were, right? Mm -hmm. Like those are, the, those are the options that are on the table. And so when they think about helping people and being a doctor, it's because that's the only box that made sense in that very large category. Yeah. So I get to introduce them to a doctor, but who's doing doctoring in a very different kind of way. Mm -hmm. And then they get a Dominican experience, which is, amazing and I love and we have you know these ongoing relationships they stay with families um, they become enlivened to a different culture and way of life that is not uh, physical resource rich but is quite rich in love and care and concern for others and so that's um, that is one of the things that I add to their educational experience that kind of just wrecks their whole view of what it means to be a doctor. Well, and I could say from my own experience, not, I mean, I was in college at the time, but it wasn't related to my college education. Um, but my own trajectory was completely shaped by being taken to a few places. Um, well, I mean, one of which was just two places that homeless people were locally. So I went to like some meal sites and got to just sit with and talk with folks who lived on the streets, who frankly, I had never interacted with and didn't know how to interact with or listen to. Um, and then I had the opportunity to spend some time um, in different countries. So not the DR, but on the other side of the um, Hispaniola, I got a few trips to Haiti, uh, went to the Philippines, went to a few places, but the Philippines was actually the place that I most remember having a deep feeling of jealousy mm -hmm. of that community like it forever and i was like this is weird like you're saying it's not they don't have the access to the like i have a, i am wealthy in comparison in every material way i've got a computer a vehicle a house i got air conditioner warm water like in the contrast is almost too much to articulate mm -hmm. but i had never seen joy and community like this, ingenuity like this, resiliency like this. And I became familiar with what I've called like a type of wealth that exposed my own poverty, where I was like, oh, uh, I am destitute in yeah. comparison, almost very, almost to the point I can't articulate it in the same way of the material possession contrast, right? And it forever changed me. And for to this day, I would say most of what I do is because of that experience and trying to recreate that for others, introduce others to that experience. 
And then also to just get some of the wealth of the poor in my life. Like I want what they have and maybe I have something they might want too. Right. right. Um, and I imagine that's why you would say, Oh, this is the best thing that I do because of there's some, there's some, it, you, it's not a guarantee, but there's a possibility for this impact in those places that you cannot recreate in a classroom. Exactly. It's kind of like being a patient in a hospital. Sure. Yeah. I'm not going to put somebody in the hospital on purpose. Like that's. I might, but yeah, I got you. Yeah. But I can take them to a place where they can have an experience that. Yeah. Mm. It's like you could put them there and go, well, let's see what happens. And in more times than not, it's impactful. And I get the opportunity to write recommendation letters for a lot of my students for med school. And in those conversations, I like in the rec letter, I talk about the trip to the DR, but in their interviews and in their personal statements, they often talk about how that changed them. Like we have students who will choose a particular um, med school because it's community health based. Yep. They're going to go into a part of medicine that will not make them a lot of money. Yep. Like they're going into debt for med school and then it's going to be 20 years before they dig themselves out of it because they're mm -hmm. going to sacrifice the, the slick, you know, um, opportunity to be a specialist and make a lot of money for the thing that they said they want to do all along, which is to do good in the world and to help people. And so I really love that and appreciate that. Um, about this kind of opportunity. And a lot of them go back on their own. They yeah. like go back for a summer long internship with Dr. Awesome. Or just go back to visit their family. Yeah. I just love these people. I feel like they're my family too. So good. And it's a very common refrain. But one of the things I really love about that trip, when it's a, a December trip, because you're taking it in December and May, many times, the December trip in students go home and about the time they wake up, it's Christmas Day. Yeah. And, you know, they open up some $200 gift. And the, the stark contrast yeah. between where they've been and where they are, I think, really takes hold in that. I mean, it basically wrecks the whole Christmas thing um, for them in terms of the material, like getting stuff. It's a good goal. Like, I'm going to wreck your Christmas. That's yeah. what we're doing here. <laughs> tell them that uh no yeah you hold that back until maybe the flight home be like well yeah. good luck with that um well it's interesting um I, i'm gonna I, I promise i'm gonna circle back to these things but like i just piggybacking on that you reminded me of some interactions i had i want to say this was in haiti we had a group of students with us so i worked with a, a dude that start who, who's from haiti um but lives in the United States that we went together. He was working with a the community there and started used the model of a fraternity because he liked, he liked fraternities and, um, and, and there was a group of men in this village that he had met. And he's like, I'm going to continue to come back and let's use the, the template of a fraternity, a brotherhood. Like, and so we were there to work with them, but we piggybacked that with like a, another trip doing something else at a local orphanage we just kind of tagged along so we get down there it was nearby so we were over here working with this community they were working this like more student group working in an orphanage and but we we got together with them for like meals and things like that i mean that was the whole idea is like you guys are going and gonna have it all set up 
uh, we're going to go do this other thing, but like we can eat here, sleep here, that kind of thing. So we, we partnered and did that. And I remember, um, there was like this, you know, so people have like kind of a gated in property, you know, there's like closed off, but you can see through it. It's like uh, bars and they, they were getting everyone together for lunch and they brought out all this chicken and the, um, oh, man, the food there is incredible. Um, and so we start fixing up some plates and, and I, we start realizing that there's some students who are not getting food or not eating. And, and, uh, and, and by the way, there's a bunch of people coming to the gate, like from around the community. Right. And, there's students who are like, I can't eat and see them. Uh-huh. And I just thought this is the greatest. And so, so one of the, and like, I, I think I mimicked this at first and then like really owned it. It became, but like, I want to say it was my buddy that said this first, but he said like, you always eat like this and they are always out here like this. Why? Do you have a problem today? Eat your lunch. You always eat your lunch. When do you have a problem eating your lunch? Like now it's a problem all of a sudden because you can see them. Like, as a matter of fact, it's, this is good for you. Eat your lunch and, and watch. Like just, yeah, they're there. They would love some chicken too. We have chicken for you guys. That's what we got chicken for, right? Like you always eat your lunch. What's the problem? And and that became a thing that echoed again and again and again. I see you nodding. So just go ahead. I, I'm like curious about these because there's these little moments that feel like the whole trip was defined by this moment with this person or whatever. Yeah. I mean, there are, I think for, for different students and different people, those moments get defined at, at different times yeah. or places, you know, and it can be it could be a big thing that's kind of, everybody's kind of focused on like that or it could just be this side conversation like um where we do a lot of health clinics and the students work in like intake registration and um there's a nurse who kind of oversees the vital section so the students are learning to do blood pressure and temperature away and people and stuff like that but they meet the patients when they come in and to meet you know, when you have a 20-year-old college student who meets a 17-year-old in a bate, which is a, um, uh, basically, the, the history of Hispaniola is, is challenging, and Haitian mm-hmm. people were brought to the Dominican to work in the sugarcane plantations. Yep. They were made promises. Those promises were not kept, and now they live in those same plantation areas. Most of the sugarcane plantations cane plantations are no longer operational, but these groups of people who came from Haiti generations ago still live there with no citizenship and no, uh, no real connection to any country. They still speak Creole, but they also speak Spanish usually, and they have some very um, difficult living circumstances and harrowing stories to tell. Mm-hmm. So when a 17-year-old shows up at a health clinic and she has three children who are hers and a 20 year old takes in this woman with her children it it will rock her world Mm -hmm. because she will realize that this is a different place that she does not understand she knows nothing of 
and has no idea how to help. Because I think the, the thing about I want to help people sort of indicates that you know how. There, yeah. That's one of the things I wanted to circle back to. Go on. Yeah. It's, it's like help who and how, right? So if nothing else, it, it, it identifies the complexity. Yeah. What it means to help somebody else. Mm -hmm. It means walking into the storm mm -hmm. and being okay with, you know, getting whipped around and doing it wrong mm -hmm. and saying something that you regret and going back and trying to make it right. But it's always a, mo a forward motion mm. um, that, okay, well, I did that wrong, but, but how can I stop and listen and think and take it in? I, there's a, a communication theory that I teach in my classes called the culture-centered approach to health communication. And it's Mohan Dutta is the, the author of this um, approach. But what, what he is railing against is this very common process of people in, in public health, like huge organizations that you've heard of, who go to a place and say, we know what the problem is. Here is this big multi-million dollar solution to your problem, and then it doesn't work. Yeah. And one of the reasons it doesn't work is because they didn't listen. And yeah. it's not just that it's the wrong solution to the problem, it's that they may not even identify, the people who live there may not even identify that as the problem. Yeah. And so if you don't know what the problem is, you certainly don't know how to help. And if your idea of how to address the problem is to solve it, with this thing that worked over here, then you probably don't have enough respect for the problem either. Mm. Because problems are not just solved, they're addressed. Like if you have marriage problems, you don't just solve it with some intervention, you address the problem and you continue to work on it for the rest of your life and your relationship because it's that valuable and it's that important. You have to keep moving towards it. I love that you used marriage as a way to like illustrate that because, well, I have, um, I got from my buddy, Ian, um, he, he, he is the first person I heard articulate it this way, but it was in reference to me. He was like, uh, I use this phrase, but like, I see this in you and it really was helpful to me, but like you married a problem, not meaning my wife. Right. But like, Although maybe you married a problem, but like, yeah, but be to be married to a problem, right? Rather than a solution, rather than a specific tool to say, you know, you enter this storm, you marry this situation. And for the rest of your life, there's this unpacking, this journey, this thing that takes place. And, and my own experience has been with poor communities that, or even individuals that it's a, it's a, it's a surefire way to deeper to deepen the experience of poverty, to go to the poor and to not give them the opportunity to voice their own problem or their own hoped for outcome. And to say, here's what you're going to get. Here's what's best for you here. It's like to begin by impoverishing, to begin by stripping the voice that they do have, the perspective that they do have um, in, in, and, and to be, like you said, like to be solution oriented in a way that's destructive and hugely problematic to begin with, mm -hmm. um, where in many cases it would have been better had you not visited. Right. And that is, that is an ongoing concern that I have all the time 
with taking students to the Dominican, even. Yeah. you know, like, are we doing good? Are we making um, a positive impact? Or are we harming people unawares? And I think it's all of the above. Yeah, the answer is yes. There is no person who's perfect. Like, mm. you married a problem, I married a problem, my husband married a problem, your wife married a problem. Like, we yeah. marry problems, right? Because people have problems. And so when we show up there, the worst thing we can do is see ourselves as the solution and them as the problem. That's oh, a, that's horrifying. Yeah. Like, absolutely horrifying. And yet common. The problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we're also people who are beautiful and complex and want to be related and have an opportunity to go and be related to other people. And so we go and we do that and we see what happens and try to realize that it's just not about us. Mm. The whole thing is not about us. And one of the things that I do like about going back to, um, to the VR, which is killing me right now because we obviously cannot go. Right, right, right. You know, I haven't been, it'll be a year next week since the last time I was there. And um, it's, that's the longest I've gone without going since 2016. So it's really hard to not have that um, connection with these people who are my friends. But the, the ongoing relationship at least helps me to know when I have caused harm, I'm more likely to at least be able to, to see it and to address it than if I just went drop things left and never went back. Like it's mm-hmm. about the relationship. And that's yeah. what I try to get the students to see. This is about the relationship. The reason that Dr. Carroll's initiative works is because he's related to these communities. He goes and then he goes back and he walks through these neighborhoods and he knows the people who live in the houses and they know him. And this relatedness is what is going to be the most powerful tool there is no pharmaceutical that's going to do that. There is no, um, you know, medical device or piece of infrastructure that is going to triumph over a positive relationship that someone has because through that relationship is an opportunity for care and love and dignity and regard. And that is, I think, more important than, um, than the the need to like satisfy my own want to make me feel like I helped somebody. Do me a favor, do me a favor and tell me something. So I know that your research is really qualitative, right? And so that's more based on interviewing and um, kind of survey of the culture and the narrative and is it called ethnography? Yes. Um, And I I do auto ethnography, so that's super fun. Like self bio is that? Yeah, 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 yeah. We should. I'd like to. I'd like to get some experience. So, so I'm just in my own shoes and the work of the well and well built bikes and all the different things that we've done. Um, I think that our we everything we've ever done has been about relationships mm-hmm. as best we can set the table for that, and. And it's been very clear to me, like, I don't actually, like, here's a meal. It's okay. You're going to get hungry again. This doesn't fix anything. But the, but the time together is what we're after, right? Um, we can build a bike together. We can work in the garden together. But I want to set tables where these people can rub shoulders, much for the same reason 
that you want to take people to the DR and that you're doing experiential learning projects in town in the diverse community that, that your college is in. Um, but one of the challenges that like I just thought of based on what you were saying, cause you're like, well, that's what matters. And it's not all about the like thing that we hope to achieve or whatever in our work and in probably most nonprofit work, uh, you need to fund the work and you try to write grants or talk to potential investors or donors. Um, and it's always been a challenge to me because of what seems like the need for quantitative uh, analysis or impact measurement. Um, so like, it's weird cause it, it's like, it it's like it would be more meaningful and and i'm going to use this as a caricature because it's like the way i feel about it and don't like this but it would like be more meaningful to you that i was like i gave socks to 2000 people than i built two friendships mm, yeah but i am more interested in building two friendships someone else can give them socks right right but there's like so that's just an output and then you go, well, what's the outcome of having given them socks or having given those relationships? And in relationships, I mean, God, I, I go, well, how do you measure success? Well, I'm in relationship with him and we've been friends for 10 years. And was well, his life all put back together? It's like, God, no, he, this dude's a disaster. Like, yeah, like, what are we talking about? And I'm nobody's savior. And, 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 I, and I really struggle with that uh, in general. And I'm just curious, I don't know, cause I know the distinction is clear to you. And I don't know if you're in a, if you ever find yourself in a similar situation, but I'm just curious how that plays out in the, I mean, in the, I mean, it, I'm sure in the medical world, it's very similar in terms of grant orientation, what research yeah. you're going to like, even funding qualitative research itself, I imagine being more challenging oh, yeah. and data driven numbers. Yeah. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? I'm, I'm trying to like really learn something about this. So, okay. So first of all, oh, how many, there are a hundred ways I could talk about this. I love numbers. Like my two best, um, my two best subjects in high school were math and creative writing. I don't know. Oh, how that's, that perfect. that's perfect. That's perfect. I can't do history to save my life. See, but like yeah. math and creative writing, I'm all about it. Yep. So, so I get the numbers. I just want the story too. Mm -hmm. So I see that like behind all the charts and graphs, like when I see the charts and graphs, which are a very quick way to represent a lot of- They're helpful, for sure. Information. They're yeah. very helpful. Yeah. But behind all of them are stories, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's a, again, with the communication scholarship, there's a communication scholar who wrote this article a long time ago about lists and stories. Okay. That people tend to communicate by one or the other. Mm -hmm. So like hospitals, the medical world, the academic institution communicates via lists because we have to. Like, if somebody comes in the ER, you don't have an hour and a half to get their life story. You need to know what their blood type is, how much they've lost, if they're at risk of, you know, all these different yep. things, what medications they're on. You need the list mm -hmm. because it's critical for the moment. But what that patient is gonna need is the story because when they go home, they're going to call their family members or their friend or tell who they live with. They're going to tell the story of what happened. And so they're both really important. And we unfortunately live in a world that, um, it, at least 
our world does love stories. We would have Instagram and you know podcasts and all. It's our species, yeah, right. We're built for them. But when it comes to um, funding for what we consider like the serious science, yep, people start wanting those lists. Yep, Um, and they want measurable outcomes, and they want to know how many people are being impacted by this, and what the you know what's the benchmark for success here. And so it's very difficult when you love the story to, to try to turn that back into like, Oh, well, here's the list. That is the challenge, right? Yep. It's like, is. And, and when somebody gives me the list, I think, I feel like it's a lot easier to take that list and go, okay, what's the story here? Mm -hmm. But you also have to realize that every single list started because people selected which questions they want to ask. And that, the question, is a qualitative measure. People decide questions. And that qualitative move is what drives those lists. Socks. Why socks? We live in Florida, right? I mean, if you live in Minnesota, give people socks. But we live in Florida. Give them flip-flops, right? It makes a whole lot more sense. Your feet won't burn in the flip-flops, but they will in the socks. And so somebody asked the wrong question there, you know? And so... Who's asking the questions? And maybe we could ask some better questions. Not about like, um, I don't know, how many people came to this food pantry, which people always wanna know, but um, how much fresh produce was handed out to the people from the food pantry and how many um, local farmers donated to the food pantry and received some, you know, benefit from that as well. So these kinds of questions we could be asking, but oftentimes are not because maybe the grant wants us to ask that question or the, um, you know, the local government says it has to be this way, which is why we need people in policy. We need people who are deciding what they're going to fund in the grant process we need people everywhere because we need people to know that these questions really matter. My sister's a market researcher hmm. and she writes surveys for a living. When we were little, she used to like give me surveys. It was really annoying because there was, I was the only person she had to survey. And so the results were, were not very conclusive, but um, she's always loved this, like analyzing the survey data. But she will tell you that what really matters is the questions you ask on the survey, not not just the answers that you get. And if you write a bad survey, you're not going to get good data. And we're always asking the wrong questions, I feel like. Oh, man. Well, I am, I am hoping to figure out how to ask, especially to you, the right questions here. Oh. <laughs> um, I, well, well offline off, from this, I'm like, oh, I definitely want to chat more about this. We are... Um, so in the bike shop, we, and we actually had a, a, um, I'm going to mess this up. Let's say social scientist researcher that is familiar with, um, kind of qualitative research that helped us set up what we're using for our, um, for our earn a bike program. And we took kind of a double approach. We were like, well, there's only so much that we're going to be able to do qualitatively or quantitatively where it's like, all right, well, how many earn a bikes did you do? And there's some demographic information and 
you know, you can, you can get some indication of how frequently you miss appointments, how, you know, let, like talk to me about some of the challenges that you're facing, what transportation obstacles, how those present themselves and how they affect your health and your access to resources and things like that. Um, but then what we do is as they come in to do their hours and earn their bike after they'll do like a five hour day with us to kind of put in their volunteer hours, we'll have them journal. And that journal entry is just like, tell us your thoughts, feelings, and opinions about how this went. So it's framed in a way that's like, you could literally write anything. Um, and, and we say to them, you don't need to be nice. Um, if there's something we can improve, we want to know it. Um, the one of the challenges there that I haven't found my way around is, is literacy. So some people can write really good. And then some I'll be like, it was good. Um, and even that's misspelled, you know, and I'm like, okay, cool. We'll type, we'll take that. Like, that's good to know it was good. Um, and I've always been like, well, you can sit and do it verbally, but I've also been nervous about like how that'll change the, the thing. But we do that, and I've been really happy about that, where I'm like, we're doing an okay job with that, and we punch word for word all of those things into a spreadsheet so we can do like content analysis where I can go, that's where I learned from the Erna bikers where, so you start, okay, this, is the, this keeps echoing everywhere, and it's worded differently, but basically there's a theme that emerges, and, and the way that I would rephrase it out of like 100 statements was, this was meaningful work for which I was well compensated. And that was huge to us, right? For folks that were unemployed or don't have a lot of experience in that. And there was other, a lot of the things that I most love about what we're doing, I learned from those things that go, oh, double down on that. Like that's a, there was some tasks that we had people do that I thought this is like, it's almost as if we're just making them kill time. Yeah. One of them was disassembling these wheels so that we could sort out the metal. And it and I, bike shop warehouse, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you remember <laughs> disassembling and the situation with some of these wheels. Well, what was interesting is some of the some of the most positive feedback came surprisingly from people. So we've since gone, we don't actually need that done. And so we're having like, ah, it feels weird to have someone do. However, the people that wrote like this was meditative this was so good for me to sit and like have some peace mm -hmm. and like the the feedback that came out of that task is like man we might have people do this task just for their own sake yeah. if it seems like a good fit temperamentally personality wise or whatever trying to learn those things but anyway i i feel like okay i learned some stuff and i learned the value of doing that and pulled some stuff out and then i'm like oh but i also want to and, and I think a lot about this, like the whole asking the right questions. And I remember that being a big part of shaping this thing, like rewording and rewording and rewording to not lead or to not, you know, and, and I, uh, and so now I want to, I want to go to, um, and I, I plan to go to some partner organizations. So if you have ideas or want to work with me on this, uh, I want to write a questionnaire for places that are working with women, maybe not exclusively women, but have some women uh -huh. that are in a situation that might utilize the earn a bike program and then say, when I look, I see you having ideas. That's why I'm like, yeah, let's do this. When, cause I'm like, when I look at the demographic of who completed the earn a bike program, um, it's largely men. And 
part of me goes, well, maybe that's just the way it is. Maybe that's the population that needs it. But then I go, man, you know, some of the obstacles are like, well, transportation when I don't have transportation. Like, how did I get there the first time? Do I have kids? Like, and, and, and here's the thing is, I guess part of this, the lesson from people like you is, well, you can have some guesses, but you need to ask them, like, do you want the earn a bike program? Would it be helpful to you? And what might keep you from getting it, doing it? Um, you know, I'm intimidated by the type of volunteer work because there's wrenches involved. I don't know. I can only guess at this point, but I want to go. So I plan on going to a couple partner organizations and saying, Hey, would you help us with this questionnaire with your own folks? And in exchange, maybe I can fast track them um, in the waiting list a little bit, like give them some preferential treatment in the, in the timeline to go, we want to get your ladies some bikes if they need them and want them and maybe help overcome some of those obstacles. Um, but I don't have that questionnaire. This is on a to-do list, those partnerships. So it's like, oh, that's on the agenda for this coming season. That's yeah. something I want to tackle there. Sounds like you might have some ideas around that. And I just recently met someone who has an organi a nonprofit organization associated with a for-profit business, but her nonprofit organization provides transportation for women. So I thought you might be interested in meeting her. I, I am, yeah. So you want me to tell you the story of how I met Athena? Whatever you can share. Yeah, do it. Okay. So I had to buy a car. Um, my car was totaled in a hit and run accident uh, and I needed to replace it, but I needed to replace it in the middle of a pandemic, which was- This is recently? Uh, well, it was hit and a hit and run in December and I tried to replace it in July because we were in England for- This isn't months. your van, is it? No, no, no. Okay, no. okay, go on. I just, I couldn't breathe. Oh, I needed to, yeah, okay, go <laughs> That would be, that would not have been a good thing. No. Right, okay, okay. So, my little Prius that okay. I loved and got mm -hmm. 44 miles to the gallon, and I was very happy with, never had any trouble with, and kaplooey. No one was hurt. My husband was driving. We were both fine, walked away. Um, other people had arrests made. <laughs> there was a gun and a shovel involved off scene, because- they fled the scene and then somebody followed them. And I don't know, we were just standing on the side of the road by ourselves going, what are we supposed to do now? We just got hit and everybody left. And what do we do? Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> so anyhow, nevertheless, that's a whole other story, but I had to replace this car. So I go around and I start doing the, the car shopping thing, which is ridiculous. Don't like, nobody want to do that. You want to feel like you're being taken advantage of, go try to buy a car, mm -hmm. you know? And it just, you can't, it's like, Oh, I don't trust you. Oh, I don't trust you. And you sit down and you think, oh, I can trust you. Oh, no, I can't trust you. <laughs> and so it was just very frustrating. And um, we left this place one day and I um, screamed, literally, gutturally, in a parking lot, um, leaving a car dealership. Like, very demonstrably screamed. Yep, yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and we got in our car, got in our van, the nice van that's still intact. Okay. And, um, he said... I said, I need to find a car dealership run by women. There was too much testosterone in that conversation. Mm. And so he was like, sorry. <laughs> you know, there just been a big kerfuffle that blew up. And it, it, was, yeah. it was all frustrating. He was frustrated. I was frustrated. But I was really frustrated. So I Googled car dealership run by woman. And I found this place called She Car in Orlando. 
and I got home, looked him up online, made an online appointment, and within like 30 minutes, I'm talking to this woman named Athena, who now is like my BFF, and she helps me buy a car. I never had to leave my house again. I knew everything about the car. Like, it was this really great opportunity, very, very transparent about everything that was happening, really positive car buying experience. And the best thing about it was that when I bought this car, which ended up costing me less and a whole lot less stress and less exposure to the virus, which I was really concerned about um, because of this, you know, child that I've had for 18 years is immunosuppressed and I can't afford exposure for him. Yeah. Um, what was really great is that she also has a nonprofit organization that all the car sales go to support, you know, a portion of it goes to support this business she has called or a nonprofit she has called She Cares. And She Cares provides transportation for women in need. And I don't know a whole lot about it, but I think you should meet Athena. I love it. Yeah. She has access to um, you know, a a portal towards, you know, women who need transportation in Orlando, at least that's where she's based. Yeah. But she, because she's online, like she can operate anywhere in the country. That's so, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely. When we'll circle her. back to that for sure and get yeah. some, uh, get some contact info. So um, let me see here. Let me see. Uh, okay. So I know you've only, you said you'd listened to a couple of episodes of this before mm-hmm. I wanted to, and I may have already told you about the, book probably i have because i try to tell everybody but um the last so it's been a minute since i've uploaded an episode um but the last episode was with jerome miller and he is and actually i want to say that was the second one with him and just an episode or two before that was the first one jerome wrote a book that to me i think is the most important book that i've ever read um and it and i know just from talking with you you will love this book and utilize this book. Um, It's called The Way of Suffering. Mm -hmm. And it is, and I think actually he calls the field of, because he's like, he was, he's retired now. He was a philosophy professor. Um, And it's like this philosophical, psychological read of the landscape of suffering and, and grief and pain and, you know, all those things we want to avoid in our lives. Um, And he's like, and yet you find yourself there, perhaps you might do well to have some knowledge of the terrain or whatever. And he wrote this book and it actually, um, you've reminded me of it multiple times. So for those that are listening, um, you should listen to those episodes. This dude is phenomenally intelligent. Um, I, I highly recommend that book in particular, some of his other books, um, are great as well. Um, but this book in particular was like, for me is like, so I ended up connecting with him cause I just emailed him at the end of it. Um, when I finished the book, I was like, thank you so much for writing this book, which I've never done to an author, but I was like, I, this is, this one's too important. I reached out, we've stayed in touch over the years, kind of just occasional emails, but I recently asked him to come on the podcast. And we were able to do that, which was awesome. But I think he even calls like his field of study, like traumatology, um, which I, which I love. And there's, there's, I hear some familiarity, I guess. I mean, even I know recently you, you were able to, was, was the setup for your talk that you gave recently, like a, this is the talk I would give if I knew I'd 
didn't have much time left or something like that. Yeah, the last lecture. The last lecture. So yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I will confess I did not get to finish it, but I, it is queued up. And I, and by the way, for those listening, like it's, it's on YouTube, you should look it up. Um, it's so far, it's phenomenal. Um, but even the title on it is like good grief. And you, you did like this kind of like, um, oh, what was it like stay on the sunny side of life, but like yeah, in per- okay. parenthetical was like, stay on the sunny side of, the end, uh, of life. the end of life. And, and even as you were talking before, you're like, there's always a bright side. There's always something to learn. There's always something positive in this. Um, and you said something in that talk that I just, I was like, okay, this is just too good. So your last name is grief. Yeah. Isn't that fun? It is. Well, and, and it's really interesting um, because like one of the, and even as you were talking about like building your life and the things that you control and the tension with the things outside, you, outside of your control, when I talked to Jerome Miller, one of the, it's actually the first chapter of his book. Um, I want to say it's called like Ordinary, uh, The Closed Home, I think is what the opening chapter is called. I could be wrong about that, but he, work like literally the topic of work is his, the way that he talks about the way we approach life as a project, as something we're building and, and in his mind as an effort to control and secure us against vulnerability. And so he does this like, so it's funny because when I first read it, I just ate it up. But since I've been doing the work ethic and reflecting on work as like a real gift, I was like, Oh, I don't like your first chapter anymore. Like you, the way you're using work, I don't. And he's like, yeah, we mean something different. Um, and he, and it's funny. He, it made perfect sense to me. He's like, yeah, no, the work you're talking about is work that you have to die before you can do. Um, meaning you have to go through something. You have to have faced these things. And you said, well, nothing had happened to me at that point in my life. And many of these students haven't dealt with anything at this point in their life. And and having not listened to your whole talk, I know you've got something like the good news of grief and you've got a lot of your research that has taken place in end of life. And even, and I'm super fascinated around the, the, the role that people's spirituality and religion plays in, in understanding and making decisions within that space. So I, I wanted to kind of steer us into this, like, I know a class of yours is called ethics in the end of life, Right. And I want to hear a little bit about good grief. I want to hear a little bit about like why, yeah, why, why that might be something um, I might value. So I'll tell you a story. Good. I'm not a quantitative scholar. Good. One of the interviews that I conducted um, when I was working on my dissertation was with a mother whose child was three or four years old and um, was in hospice because the, the child had late stage cancer. Mm-hmm. And it was so close to the end that I was somewhat concerned that the child could die while I was conducting the interview. Mm-hmm. So very heavy. Mm-hmm. Like I felt heavy when I walked in that room and the nurses were concerned that the mother was gonna talk to me, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we were in the room, the child was very young um, and we were just talking and um, the child was asleep, you know, in the bed. 
And this was a woman who had no high school education. Um, she was, by all accounts, learning um, impaired. So she had a learning disability of mm -hmm. some kind. I don't think she could read. Mm -hmm. um, but she was very much, I mean, she was, she was not, not smart. Mm -hmm. She just was not academic. She did not have any academic prowess. Mm -hmm. And here I am a PhD student, you know, conducting research for the academic world. Mm -hmm. And I'm face to face with a woman who um, will, will never have any great strides in academia for sure. Right. And she was the wisest participant that I had in my research, you know, group. And the reason I say she was so wise is because she was facing the greatest calamity that I could really think of, you know, having to sit and watch and wait, knowing that your child was about to die. Mm -hmm. Um, it is a terrible, terrible place to be. Yet she just exuded peace and calm and tranquility and love and care. Care for me, care for the nurses who came in the room. And not like because she was not willing to admit what was going on, but because she had what I would describe as the peace that passes understanding, mm. like a, a completely illogical, nonsensical peace about her. Um, and she, what she had done is she had just made very little of herself. She was not, um, she was not self-centered in any way. She wasn't bemoaning her situation. She wasn't, um, she wasn't wallowing in self-pity, though I'm sure there were moments when she was, you know, desperate and concerned and grief-stricken in ways that would have been more maybe sensical to the rest of us. But what she did have was this deep, like, kind of trust um, that she was not the person in control. And she trusted, you know, we were talking about spirituality, and, and she just trusted that everything was out of her control, but she trusted the one who was in control or who she perceived to be in control. And because of that, she could be, she could live with what was happening. She was sad. She was appropriately sad, but she was not, um, she was not hard to be around at all. And it was captivating. It's mm -hmm. captivating to be a part of that conversation. And I just learned that anyone can exist in peace in any circumstance um, if, if they had the um, ability to see things through whatever lens she was looking through. Yeah, man, it's so good. Well, it, it really highlights this thing that I think about a lot and I, I forget where I first encountered this, but like it basically just, broke out this idea of like we have condition we have a condition we can have a condition i could be thirsty that's a condition and i could take a drink and it does something about my condition you have circumstances like you said when you were in the hospital like i can't allow these circumstances to change what i know to be true 
in, in the bigger picture outside of these circumstances. And then what you just said was like, anyone can have this, what is really a state of being this like peace that passes understanding in any circumstance and in any condition because of something that transcends circumstance and condition. And, and I'm curious, like, Oh, that's, that's been a helpful template for me because it often, like when we talk about like working with the poor, like, well, are we talking about a condition or circumstance? And like, by the way, this whole state of being question, maybe they have something to really help us with, right? Um, people who are well acquainted with suffering um, can, can teach us a substantial amount. Um, and then how does that inform? So you're doing research, you take these stories Right. You go, wow, that's a reality. Now, how does this inform? Well, what do you do with this then? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think um, maybe the first thing I do in that moment is, I mean, I would walk away from some of these interviews like, whoa, because yeah. I have to take it into my own life first. Forever impacted, right? Yeah, I mean, this has to, to do something to me if I have any hope of being able to take it to other people. So I see myself as like this conduit, right? Mm -hmm. I get something and then I should be able to pass it through to other people. Um, And so I'm like, what, what is this in me so that I can then pass it through to other people? And it may be something different, you know, right now than it was when it happened a few years ago when I actually had that conversation. But I think that the first thing that washed over me is like that, that I am so arrogant. Like I, and, and it is like my kind of banner thing that I wave all the time. Like, oh, you're so arrogant. Like I am arrogant. I think too much of myself. I think that being smart will solve problems mm-hmm. and that I'm going to be able to conquer something by, you know, as a student getting an A or as a professor doing, you know, having all my students be successful, whatever that means. It, it, like, there's just this arrogance that can consume you in academia. And if you're good at something and you do that thing and get the high marks for it, then it's easy to believe that that's the only thing that really matters. Like if you're a great musician, music is the thing that really matters. If you're a great scholar, academia is the only thing that really matters. If you're a great surgeon, the best surgery, you know, the most successful surgery is the thing that really matters but that's not true. Like we, we make up those rules ourselves so we can measure other people by them and we come out on top. Mm. You know, you look so good because you measure yourself according to other people. Well, try to measure yourself against something that's a much higher standard and see how you measure up. And this is what this woman was living every single day. She was measuring her life and everybody else's life against this perfect standard, knowing that we all kind of exist in this imperfect playing field and going, well, you know, we're going to exist here together in this kind of uh, brotherly love, you know, sisterly love. And, um, and we can do that because we're all imperfect. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was a really lovely reminder. So that was the first thing that I walked away from it with. Um, but yeah, I, I think it can be something new every time. Like, so I'm reminded of that interview and telling you about it here. Now you ask me another question. I might be reminded of something else that happened. And my students, this is, 
I mean, my class is kind of like this. So, you know, my poor students, they're always at my, oh, and now there's this story. Oh, and I had this thought and oh, here's this. And hopefully they'll cobble it together and, and, and make a story for themselves that's going to help them to navigate the, you know, whatever world they go into, whether they become a doctor or a, you know, entrepreneur, or if they decide to, you know, forget college and I'm going to go, you know, drive a street sweeper because I just need the solitude, like whatever they do, hopefully what happens in that room, they'll be able to take that block, put it on their building site and do something positive with it. Mm. So good. Well, there's a question I'm asked most every guest that I've had on and I try to remember and I, I'm, I basically almost forgot every question I normally ask everyone because just this is just I'm just loving this conversation. But you said, you know, success, whatever that means. Um, how do you define success? Oh, gosh, I hate this question. So <laughs> in my high school, I was most likely to succeed. Obviously, that is that is a stamp you should not put on you know, a kid, like, that's just not nice. Because if you're already an overachiever, and then you have a bunch of people going, well, you're most likely to succeed, let's watch and see what happens. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of pressure. Um, not really, it's mostly pressure. I mean, I wanted that title. You, you right? still get you still got your eyes on that valedictorian that was in first right. place. You're still watching yeah. like, well, was, what are they doing today? Like, like, let me check out that Facebook, see what she's got going on. He's the engineer. Like, so, <laughs> and and the, uh, there were actually two valedictorians, and then I was salutatorian because they both had a 4.0, and I okay. made B's in biology. Um, so, so he's the Duke Law grad, and she's the civil engineer who does all this awesome. you know, great stuff. So, anyhow, um, yeah, I wanted that though. Like, mm -hmm. I always wanted the accolades. I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be this and that. And, um, and, and as I gotten older, like what success, I actually, I was the editor of the high school uh, newspaper and I wrote a column every month when the newspaper came out. And the, the column that I wrote after the senior superlatives came out was called, what is success? Um, Do you have that? I, probably somewhere. Send that to me. <laughs> Find that and send that's, that to me. That's a trip to the attic, John. I'm uh, not sure if I can do it, but if I find it, I'll let you have it. All right. And then I'll read it on a follow-up podcast. Oh my gosh. Stay tuned. Question like, what does this even mean? Even then I knew like, this is, it, does it mean you're successful if you graduate from college? If you get like, I've got a PhD now, I have a job. Like are these, does this measure my success? But I mean, I don't know. I mean, mm -hmm. success is different for every person, I would say. That's a very American thing to say. Oh, well, it's very individualized, you know, mm -hmm. our individualized success. But I think we could think about, um, there are plenty of ways you could frame it. We could think about community success. What does it look like, not just for an individual person to be successful, but for your community to be successful? And maybe if my neighbor was living in a way that was, you know, whole and edifying and healthy and good, that that could be considered success because we're so bound together because mm -hmm. we live in community that their success is my success. Mm -hmm. I think that is a much more, um, I don't know, that feels a lot better than personal success because I really get tired of the, um, 
I'll take mine and, and you take yours and we'll, you know, fight it out in the end. Sure. Is, I got nothing for that anymore. Yep. It's, it's too hard. I, uh, so you mentioned before, um, that, so mom and dad both had advanced degrees. Did you say that? And dad was a coach for the Reds. Did you say that? He's a scout for the, he was a scout for the Reds. He just, just, um, his position was eliminated, you know, COVID. So, um, but, but he was a part-time scout. He owned a business for, he owned a sporting goods store for a while. He, um, he's taught in a community college. He, he actually taught in a prison, a federal like prison, nice. <laughs> uh, maximum security. Yeah. Like, um, he, he's done a lot of different things. My dad's an entrepreneur right now. He teaches hitting lessons, um, like baseball hitting lessons. So baseball. yeah, he just, yeah, he teaches kids how to hit and then helps them try to, you know, uh, get into a, a good college where they can play baseball and earn a degree and, and also, um, but my mom's a middle school teacher was she's retired now, but she was a middle school teacher. And there's, I mean, that's a special, special thing to do. Let me <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, um, she had, you know, a master's in education and then she got a special like extra certification in special ed. But I mean, she did not profit off of these advanced degrees. And my dad got an MBA, which allowed him to teach, um, you know, at the college level, but again, did not profit all through degrees. It was like, education is an endeavor for your own edification, not for, you know, Mm -hmm. not for financial success. And my husband and I have pretty much followed that. Yeah, it looks like it's stuck. It looks like it's stuck. (laughs) Well, I'm curious about something. Well, okay. In that talk on YouTube, you show this photo of you very young with your mean oh, mug yeah. and sister. That's a good um, one. It's good. And, and, it, and, and I try to ask folks, and I realize, oh, it's probably around then. Like, what, what are your earliest memories of work? Or, or to put it another way, like when work as a word took on meaning in your life, like what, what was it? How do you, like, just go as far back as you can remember. So I remember that every Saturday we would have to clean the house mm-hmm. and that I would go and suddenly have to use the bathroom. And I would spend like 20 minutes, as long as I could possibly get away with in the bathroom to try to get my sister to do more of the work than, than I would come out and help her like finish it because I would just wanted to avoid housework. I hated housework. And if you had a wider view of my office, you would already see how like messy it's becoming. I've only been in this particular office for a couple months, but it's getting there. Like mm-hmm. I just don't like to clean up, right? That that kind of work I don't like. And so I kind of thought of myself as someone who is lazy and doesn't like to work because I didn't like to clean up and I didn't like to do housework. Um, and that was the main work that I had to do. School was easy, so I could do my schoolwork. It didn't really challenge me that much and I could get it done. But I remember one time I was at softball practice and I got in the car to go home and my mom said, you know, all the other moms were talking about their daughters spreading over this big paper that you all have to do. And I was like, what? She said, have you, been working on this and I just didn't know about it 
And I just burst into tears. It's like, no, I haven't done anything on it. It was like due in two days or something. And I hadn't done any work on it because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to like actually work hard and be successful in school. I just knew how to get by and mm-hmm. be like, I mean, I still got good grades because I could just do it. And it didn't have, it didn't really require anything of me. So that was kind of my um, great awakening that sometimes school required work too. Mm. And I, I guess I had to grow into that. I remember um, in college, I remember being terrified to go to college because everything in school had been relatively easy for me up to that point. And I knew that I, I knew people who spent one semester at college and then had to tuck tail and turn and go home. Mm-hmm. And I did not want that to be me. Mm-hmm. And I was really afraid that was going to be me. Thankfully, it, you know, it stuck. Obviously I learned how to read a syllabus and to do the thing <laughs> you're supposed to do and to get the good grade at the end and to pat myself on the back. Always a forward um, motion. What? You said always a forward motion earlier. Always forward motion. That's it. <laughs> but um, I don't even remember where I was going with this. What was the original? Well, question? work, like memories of work, shaping oh, of work. Hard. Yep. Then I remember um, being on uh, one of those like spring break trips in college mm-hmm. where you go and do service. We were in um, we were in a Native American community roofing a house. So. Mm-hmm. You know, picture like 18-year-old me, um, probably like 5'2", 105 pounds or something, you know, up on top of a roof with a shovel trying to, you know, get get shingles off of a house. And it was, it was the, you know, kind of traditional definition of what work is and feeling like I could do work like this. Like mm. there was some kind of power in it. And I just remember thinking, work hard, work hard. This is good. This is good. And you could see the production of what happened, like over the course of a number of days, you actually see the physical work that you do. And there's something really gratifying about that. And as a student, you don't always see what you've done. Um, And so physical work that you can see was really, really great. But then I remember going on another trip um, many years later where the work that we were doing was more in line with what I was like learning in school. And I was teaching something that I really felt like I had a skill at, not like roofing a house where somebody had to show me literally every single thing to do was something I felt equipped to do. And I thought, Oh, this is, this is even more meaningful. Like Mm. I actually have something to bring here and to work with people on and to, um, you know, to be that conduit, like of passing through something I have gotten. I've been blessed with this. Let me bless you with that. See where that goes from there. And that was really, um, so, so like all these different instances, but in every single one of them, um, it was, how am I going to relate to the people around me and do this thing that I've been called to? Like, how is this going to impact somebody else? When I was a kid, not wanting to clean the house, was like, how much can I get my sister to do, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and if mm-hmm. she ever watches this, she'll be like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then for like working on a roof of a house with a bunch of other people, it was like, I want to do my part. Like I want to hold my own here and, and work with my you know, friends. And then when I'm you know, teaching and have an opportunity to, to teach something that I've gotten to learn about 
it was great to be able to relate this to other people in a way that was, you know, hopefully edifying to them. And so these are all kind of different ideas of work, but they all have something to do with how you relate to the people around you. I love this. I almost feel like I want to like pull out a template and maybe you already have one in mind, but like, you're like defining this work in relationship, like, okay, I'm going to get her to do it. I'm going to do my part, kind of be part of a team and carry my weight. Um, and then relaying these things to others. And I want to add one that I'm sure you're familiar with and maybe want to speak to. Um, if this was like a template we laid out, the other one I would say is the, is, and maybe you've seen this on trips you've taken or the people you were on that roof with, um, or the people that you researched alongside, but like the thing that happens between shoulder to shoulder work, mm -hmm. I think is a powerful dynamic. And actually I would argue is the best table that can be set. So we set a table and we eat together. That's like the, the, the archetype of, you know, breaking bread and building relationships. And even in history has major, major significance, but for me, experientially, I'm like, yeah, but if we dig a ditch together or we build this bike together or we rip this roof off together or yeah. we research this topic together, something happens. And I see you nodding emphatically. So, oh so tell me about that because I feel like that goes with all that you're saying here. So, I, I mean, I can think of many instances in which that has happened like this resonance that you get with this group of people mm. towards a common goal um i'm That's trying to think of the 700 things that are popping off in my mind right now i want to kind Not of go in this moment. but like so my colleagues that i work with here in honors college um the the faculty and the advisors and our our dean and everything, like i really like doing what we do with these people because we have these common goals and right now it's killing us because we don't get to see each other. Like I walk out this door, there's nobody out there. People are having to work from home and, and we're all sort of like separated and we're kind of bemoaning that because we actually like to be together. Mm -hmm. And I think that that gets lost in the, I'm going to get my dream job. Well, your dream job will be defined by the people you work with much mm -hmm. more than what your job description is. Cause if you work with people that, drive you nuts and that you have a you know a really bad fracture you know fractured relationship with it won't matter how much money they give you to do it it yep. won't be enough and you won't be fulfilled but if you work with people that you enjoy being around and that you feel like some resonance with like you're doing good work in the world and i don't care if that's picking up the trash on the side of the road or if it's teaching students or if it is, you know, organizing a storefront, it doesn't really matter as long as you have this kind of camaraderie, teamwork feel that feels like good and productive work that, mm. that you real like there's something, it's like the, um, the fourth dimension about that. Like you can't see it or smell it or touch it, but you can, uh, now I'm going to the senses instead of dimensions, whatever, you know, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I got you. but, but there's something there beyond what can really be described. It's a sense of, it's a sensibility. And mm -hmm. I felt that like in, um, working with groups, like leading a camp, you know, like a bunch of adults scrapping it out with a bunch of students, you know, where you're like, Oh my goodness. And you get this camaraderie or with my faculty here, or with my students, when we go to the Dominican, I mean, it, 
there is a there is a relatedness with these people because you've had this common shared experience but what i want to what i want to get to with this is this is why i really really believe in interdisciplinary teams Mm. Um, we have huge problems in the world. We do a grand challenge competition um, in honors. And what I tell the students every time is, you know, if we're going to address the big problems in the world, we're not going to do it as individuals. And we're not going to do it from a single disciplinary lens. Yeah. Like engineers are not going to solve the world's problems. Doctors are not going to solve the world's problems. Teachers right. are not going to solve the world's problems. But if you put a doctor, a teacher, and an engineer in a room together, yep. and they begin to look at what is going on, to talk to people, to understand the problem, those different lenses and perspectives will begin to make something richer and they will appreciate the perspective of another person. If you line up five engineers, they'll be competing for who's the best. Yeah. But if you put an engineer, a doctor and a teacher in the room, the engineer can appreciate what the doctor knows because the, they don't know that. And the doctor can appreciate what the teacher knows because they don't know that. And the teacher can, you know, it just goes to this like rich related um, relationship or working together that I think is much more fruitful than the siloed approach that we often get. And academia is the, the worst offender of this. Mm. Like we have to silo out every little category of education you're this kind of major so you take these kinds of classes and we might pepper it in with a few things so you're not you know completely just in one direction but we're not really focused on bringing together different disciplines which is why i like the honors college because this is what we do we're inter we're bringing all these people together yeah there's so much about what you do that just resonates so deeply where i'm like in some in so many ways i'm like we are we have a very, we're like in the same vocation or have a very similar calling that looks very different. Um, but I just hear, as you talk about like your heart for what you're doing, um, just really resonates with me. And I love that you use the word resonance in these bringing people together. And, and incidentally, it is a technology even it's, it's a, um, you know, there's tribes that will send all of the young men, out into the wilderness for a time together to suffer an ordeal together uh, sometimes even with some hallucinogens together you know like go see demons together um because some and, and very similar we see in soldiers when they come back from war like there's there's something like bonds or brotherhood theme Yes, um, and, yes, yes. You know, people who play music together, literal resonance with each other. Like you have to make this thing together as one. I think the, the symphony or the band is a really great image mm, of what's going that's on. That's good, that's good. Everybody has their part, but when you put it all together, it makes something really beautiful and captivating, even to other people and good for others. And, and I think we understand that. I mean, kids get that in school. Yeah. And it's, I think when we leave school, it can be a rude awakening that as adults, we don't have many of these opportunities for these resonant kinds of, you know, um, gatherings anymore. Like you're not supposed to play sports after you get out of high school or college. Like mm. some adults do. And I think that's great. But most of us don't get those kinds of opportunities. You don't take dance classes anymore and have a recital. You don't play mm. in the band anymore because there's no band to be played in. Now you have to go to work and do these things and you don't have this opportunity to work.
collectively with a group of people to make something or accomplish something that is, um, you know, bigger than yourself. Man, it's a powerful idea. And, uh, and, and maybe even something I want to like explore further in this podcast is just this idea of the effects of communal work. Um, and, and you, you saying, yeah, you, you know what you want to do, but the bigger question or, and a question that is, is equally important is who you will do it with or who you will work alongside. And, um, now I just think, I just love the way you, it surprised me and it makes sense because you're such a highly relational person that you, as you just, here's how I understand work. Here's what it was. Here's a few stories about it as it took on meaning in my life, but ultimately it's all related. It's all relational to the rest of the world and to other people and how I, how you see yourself kind of in um, the world. I, I, I wanted to check in real quick cause I know we're coming up on the time that we said we'd jump off. Um, are you, are you good for a few minutes or you got to bounce? You're good. You're good. Well, good. Cause I, I'm like, you know, when this is done. So you just, you keep me on here as long as you want. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I don't have forever either, but, and, and, and honestly, I'm like, I feel like you, you and I could do like a, 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 a freaking daily show. I'm like, this is, I could do this regularly with you and would probably benefit from it. Um, so I wanted to ask you something that's, that jumped into my head when I was looking at your classes and it's the end of life ethics class. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of ethics and philosophy in general. And then specifically around the end of life, um, I have, well, I have a lot of thoughts, many of which are just related to a philosophical perspective. Right. Um, but I want to tell you, uh, a brief version of, so my, my dad passed a few years back and he, um, so he ended up with leukemia and so he ended up in Moffitt. And then after like a long battle with that, um, which even the long battle with that was kind of a gift, right? Cause it wasn't immediate. We didn't lose him. I had time to like process all this stuff with him. It was a real gift. Um, hard on the family, but, but we're grateful for the time we had where it's like, oh, this is coming. We can plan and prepare and he can, you know, we can wrap some stuff up. Mm -hmm. um, but in the last days, and he had, I could just like, it, beyond the leukemia, he had, and it related to leukemia because his body couldn't heal itself. So he had some other, this is actually what probably ended up killing him is, is actually a, I mean, ultimately it's leukemia. Right, but it's always something else. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and what made what threw him into leukemia and related to maybe doctors aren't always helping was a doctor that tried to do a surgery on a very small unrelated prop. He didn't have leukemia, but he did have like what I forget the acronym, but it's like the predecessor to leukemia, and he'd had that for ten years. Right, They're like it's manageable. It's no big deal. I don't remember the letters. Um, but he had a problem and they just were like, Oh, we're going to do this little surgery. No big deal. Um, and he could never recover from it physically. Like his body wouldn't heal. That leads to infections, immune systems crashing. Now it's leukemia and it just started this drop off. And the timeline is like, he shouldn't have had that surgery. Like that surgery led to this for sure. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the family's like, look, things happen, but we're going to send that doctor at least a letter going heads up if someone has this condition you might want to like rethink the like cutting into them kind of thing or whatever so anyway all that to get to this last few days of my dad's life he's got 
pretty substantial wounds that are, I mean, hard for me to even think about that. They looked to me, looked like you had been like a shotgun wound. It it was like open, open, open. And, um, and he had dealt with this pain of those wounds throughout this whole process. And then, Oh, and then I have leukemia. Right. Right. And eventually he goes, um, he does like home hospice and he comes home and we do some stuff in the house, but then we go to hospice. You know, it's like, it's time. Let's take him in. It's the last few days. And my mom, same as when I was in the, when I was in my, my poor mom, but when I was in my car accident, she never left my side. Um, and, and she was right there with my dad through all of this, like never left this side. Right. And, um, it was just, it wasn't immediate when he went into hospice and she had never left his side, but when he had gone back, now she's, that was like the little window she got to sleep at home. Yeah. Um, when he was at home, but it was only a few days. Now he's back in and she was just, I mean, it's like, look, lady, you just need to get a night's sleep. Right. So I, I basically said, I'm going to stay with dad tonight. Bounce, like go home, try to sleep, do whatever you need to do to get to sleep. Like you really need some sleep and you're going to need it here soon. Right. So she goes home. So I stayed with him that night and it's some little like, so like, so my dad had the TV blaring, even though he's completely knocked out. It's got like around the clock, like news on. And if I changed it or it's like, he would come out, he would come out of like a morphine induced coma to be like, boy, I was watching that. And then like go back to sleep or whatever. I was like, what the heck? So I had to leave that on. And then he's there like struggling. And I mean, and they got him on a ton of painkillers and he's not really there totally other than to get up and snap at me a few times about the TV. So it's like, okay, I can't change the TV. So I'm basically just sitting there and, um, I, I struggled the whole night with what I believe was ethics. So I, I felt that this was wrong. Um, that it was, it was wrong. Like I, I, cause I was like, I wouldn't let a, a dog lay and die like this. And no one would question like ending that pain or that pro it's like, this is inevitable. This is what's happening. Yeah. And I know like, man, if I saw like an animal that was mortally wounded, like what would I do? This is my father and I'm alone in this room. And I also know the legal repercussions of seeing through what I believe to be right, like in some deep way. And it was existential. It wasn't like I've thought about this a lot, but I was like looking at him going, this shouldn't go on. Like, what are we waiting for? And getting kind of upset and angry. And I, so I stayed awake the whole night, just thinking, like sitting there staring at him and thinking like, what do I do in this scenario? And I feel I'm not free to do what I think is right or, and I may not be right about that, but I can't shake this feeling that to just sit here feels like, I mean, for lack of a better word, feels like sin. Like this just feels wrong. Um, And so it's that whole scene came flooding into my head, just reading the title of your class. 
I'm curious if it's even related to what your class is about. Um, but I was like, oh, if you have a few more minutes, I was like, yeah. I want to hear about that class, but I also just wanted to share that story with you. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of my students are interested in the topic specifically of physician assisted suicide or physician assisted death, which would um, is is legal in some states. About seven states have physician assisted. Really? Death. Yeah, where people can um, with a prescription from their doctor and like multiple like checks in place. It's terminal, that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It has to be terminal. They have to be um, analyzed by psychologists. They have to. Like there have to be several things that happen, but ultimately they can get a prescription for a lethal dose of a medication that they would drink mm -hmm. and that would end their life mm -hmm. um, of their own will and volition, like not something that would have to involve anybody else doing something to them. Mm -hmm. There are huge, as you can imagine, ethical um, mm -hmm. issues with this but one of them is that access to health care is unequal in our country and some people may be more likely to choose that as a self-sacrifice for their family and financial situation mm -hmm. than they would be to continue on because they don't have access to good yeah. health care makes sense and that um that access to palliative care and hospice care in particular is helpful in alleviating the pain and suffering of and they had good drugs yep yeah sure. so while that is definitely hard to watch for sure mm -hmm. hopefully for your dad that experience the, the pain at least was not you know as severe as it was and i, and I often say this about even just like a family dynamic or life of, of when you're they're suffering sometimes it is worse from the outside looking in than it is to actually live through that yep. um because there are things at work and at play in a um in a family or in the midst of a situation that people on the outside can't perceive kind of like yep. that piece that passes understanding that the relatedness the resonance between people working together all of that can exist without really being able to see that from the outside looking in but at the same time death is ugly and hard and sad and i believe we were made for life mm. and death is something that we should not treasure and prize um but it is a 100 percent reality for every yep. person that gets born it's part of it you know? it's part of the package it's part of it and the, and the fact that we're unwilling to talk about it mm -hmm. acknowledge it plan for it accept it these are all problems mm. and they're pro they're more problematic because of our um because of our advancements in healthcare. so um you know years ago your dad would have never had that surgery which was ultimately the cause of so much pain for him right um because the technology wouldn't have been there for him to have the surgery he wouldn't have had the surgery he still would have would have died from something and he would have yep. leukemia, but it would have been a different path. It would have been a different way. But yep. sometimes the medical interventions that help us to recover from things, help other people to live in a liminal state where they're not really going to recover from that. And it stretches out the time that they're alive 
And then ultimately a lot of times, particularly for children, so babies who are born very early, and of course you go to extreme measures to save these children, which I've had a child in this exact circumstance, the first words that I remember the doctor saying to me after Will was born um, was he kept saying, if he succumbs, if he succumbs, this is what's mm. gonna happen, if he succumbs. And so he was literally like, um, you know, um, it was touch and go. They didn't know if he was going to live through the night, the first, um, his first day of life. And so, but what happens is, you know, the children get put on ventilators and people, adults get put on ventilators. You're in a car wreck, you get put on a ventilator. A ventilator is a great thing. It's kept a lot of people alive in COVID and we've made a lot more of them mm-hmm. and the more of them we have, the more of them we will use. But when a patient is dying because they're dying and you put them on a ventilator to keep them alive, Mm. the way off of the ventilator is for someone to sign a document as a decision maker to take them off that ventilator. And to me, that is an act of violence to the person who has to hold the pen and sign their name. Mm. Because what you're saying is you're, you're literally signing a legal document that says, I'm good with you, you know, doing something that will result in my loved one's death. Right. We didn't used to have to sign documents like that. People just died. Yeah. They died of pneumonia. They died of heart attacks. They, and it was sad and it was terrible and it was awful. But when those same people in those same circumstances still die, but instead of letting them go, we, you know, pump them up with, um, you know, with drugs and put them on machines and try to keep them going for as long as possible. And then we have to sign a form to pull all that stuff out of them that doesn't acknowledge that life has an end to it. Mm. You know, throwing a kitchen sink at someone who's 90 years old is cool. Yeah. Cool. And so there's a, there's so many ways that life Mm. ends for people. It would be nice if we could talk about it and have a plan for what we want. Like, what would you want? What would you, do you want the TV blaring the news? You know, in your last days, does that bring you some level of comfort, even if it drives your son crazy? Okay, well, so be it. We're going to turn the TV on and CNN it up. You know, whatever it is that you love, let it, let's have at it. You know, do you want to eat, you know, some food that's the doctor says you're not supposed to have because it's bad for your cholesterol? Yes. Go for it. Yes. You know, let's have a party. You know, yeah. what is it that you want that brings you comfort? And let's talk about that. Yeah. Because there's some great documentaries on um, online, like on Netflix, there's a documentary called Extremists. It's 22 mm-hmm. minutes, best 22 minutes you can you can spend if you want to understand the complexity of end of life in hospital care. Oh, I can't. Oh, I can't wait. wait. Yeah, I mean, it's just conversations with families and a, a, an intensivist slash palliative care physician who is trying to help families navigate these difficult decisions because their loved ones have been put on machines and they make different decisions for different reasons, but listening to them Mm. talk about why they're going to do what they're going to do is really enlightening to the conundrum that people find themselves in, in medical care. So, yeah, I mean, I could talk about, I teach a whole class on this. So of course I've got a lot of material. I can teach books too. Yeah, well, I know that was really helpful. And and honestly, I mean, at some level, as just on the philosophical, psychological side of things, I just, 
like you're saying, death is something we want to avoid and not face. And, um, and much, much of what is wrong in us comes from something like avoiding the realities of death. I mean, I think of like Ernest Becker's, um, the denial of death and uh, terror management theory that emerged out of that. And there's a lot of very clear ways that like our efforts to overcome death as a as an individual or as a population um lead to some of our worst behaviors and um hardest things that we can do um to kind of because i I do need to run here soon i would i probably would want to do this again uh definitely would i want to talk to you a lot more and there's so many things like you said that i'm like man i want to go back to so many of them um but i'm curious if you have thoughts just like on what we were just saying so the idea of mortality and, um, and then the topic of work. So um, here, I have no idea who this person was. Um, I heard an interview once. Um, it was a person that worked in, which I can't say this, is it palliative, palliative care? Care, Yeah. Palliative care. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, he, and he referred to um, life. Well, he used the, the image of a bottle of wine. And he's like, a bottle of wine is a really great um, thing for me. He's like, I want, the guy was like, I love wine. Um, and, but one of the things I love about wine is you finish it. He's like, so there's like this bottle that is like hundreds of years old, that's been seller kept, that is worth thousands of dollars, that at some level people want to act like now it should be in a museum because it's not wine anymore. It's like this treasure. He's like, but it's wine. And actually it's going to be probably great wine if it was stored properly and it's meant to be drank. Yeah. And, and then when you finish it, it's gone. It was, it was a, and, and he elaborated on that, that illustration, which has always stuck with me. Um, and, and then just to piggyback, just cause it triggered another memory. So uh, GK Chesterton, a favorite writer of mine writing on courage um, was saying that, like he's basically like we can't stay alive by running for death. He was actually referring to Jesus saying um, he who seeks to save his life will lose it, but who loses his life will save it. And he's like, this is not mysticism. It's practical. He's like, if you're in a fight, if you're in war and you want to get out of it, you can't hide. So you have to cut your way through. So you have to risk your life to save it. He's like, if you're mountain climbing, you have to jump across the precipice to to get out of this alive he's like so you have to you have to throw your life away you have to like be willing to die to live and and that was this thing that's always stuck with me and so the line that ties these together with the image of wine so gk chester says so we desire life like water and we drink death like wine Mm. and i love that line um and then it reminded me this image of that but as we like reflect on mortality and these beautiful things that come to an end and even something crafted like wine, I guess I would be, I would be interested to hear you maybe um, speak to just how do you see our relationship with death and mortality like in relationship to work, to, our, to what we're giving our lives to, to what we're spending yeah. our time on? Like you live a certain amount of time and you spend yourself mm-hmm. doing hard things. Yeah. And then you're gonna die. Right. Yeah. Like talk to me about, I just, the idea of like mortality and vocation, I guess if that's a yeah. 
clear enough way to frame it? So I was thinking about what you were talking, I was thinking about um, the idea of safety. Mm. Like, mm -hmm. So one of the, one of the problems that I have with medicine is that safety is the number one priority. And if you're in a drug trial, maybe that is, you know, important. Obviously, I don't want to disregard safety altogether when you're talking about medicine and patients and cutting on them and whatnot. But for someone who's coming to the end of their life, safety means not doing a lot of things, mm. not eating that food, not going these places, not leaving unattended, not climbing up on that thing to get that, you know, off the top shelf. There's a lot of safety that hems people in and keeps them from being able to do the thing that they want to do. Yep. Um, and people aren't nearly as concerned for their own safety as they are for life itself and living in a way that is um, relational and fruitful. Like if you talk to older people about what's most important for them, um, they will usually say something about like their family or their friends or their relationships. Yep. If you talk to someone who is my age, your age, college student, what's most important to them is their work, Maybe they're, you know, um, the thing that they're about right now, because it's all production centered, you know, the thing that they're making is yep. really important. Um, so it shifts over time. So what we're working on, it, a lot of it depends on where we view the end. Mm -hmm. You know, older people begin to grapple with the final days of life, whether, whether it's overtly acknowledged or not and it's unpopular to acknowledge this um but they begin to grapple with seeing the end and looking back over what what they have made or what they have produced by our standards over time but that um you know finishing strong has been always important to me i put that on my i think that's in my um in my last lecture thing i had that written on the chalkboard. I had an old school chalkboard in my office when I was a PhD student. And I wrote in giant letters, finish strong. Because this was, this is something my dad used to say in a baseball game to his pitchers, you know, mm -hmm. finish strong. Like this, this game, and this is another reason I love baseball. This game is not over until the final out in the final inning, because until then anything can happen. So you want to see it all the way through to the end. Yeah. And what you want is, not you know the longest game in the book but you want the game that ends well and that's what we remember too is the end yeah you know you remember the final moments of the tight basketball game yep. you remember the walk-off homer you know you remember you remember how something ends and we don't think about life that way until it's too late when life ends tragically and horribly because you had to sign a form and pull somebody off a machine, it paints everything that worked backwards. Mm -hmm. But if life ends in a way that is um, kind of, uh, that, that makes sense at least for the person and who they were and offers some level of dignity to them, um, then it's a lot easier to be able to tell that story going forward for the family and the friends of that person. Um, but if someone dies tragically or horribly or painfully, 
um, it's just harder to make sense of. And it's, mm -hmm. and it, and it taints the work of their life, whatever that was in some particular way. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if that really answers the question or not, but, but I do think that the way we finish most everything else, we finish the bottle of wine, we finish a meal with dessert. It's a good one, you know, mm -hmm. work, you're like, there's a dessert here. This is good. <laughs> so like, that's important. Um, even like finishing, uh, finishing school, we have a graduation ceremony. Like we think about the ends of all kinds of things, but we don't want to think about the end of life. And I think it's just because we don't know what comes next. Um, you know, and yeah. so that it's a fear. And so we just avoid it. But we don't know what comes next after graduation either. Sure. You know? Yeah. Um, that doesn't seem to stop people from wanting to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, not I think people should want to, to die, but it's, it, yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to talk myself into circles It's now. an exciting journey ahead of us, though, that is into that dark corner or the unknown that we want to avoid. A um, couple thoughts you triggered there. Um, I, well, one, I, I read this study that was done and it was surveys. You said, if you talk to people in their final hours and there was a bunch of, and you may be very familiar with this, or it may have been updated. You may be able to correct this. Cause this is old. This was in an older book. Um, but if I remember right, there were, they surveyed hundreds of folks in the final days of their life and uh, it just opened, opened up, like, talk to me about your life and, you know, um, maybe I think something in that conversation was like, maybe things you would have done differently. Mm -hmm. Um, and there were lots of different answers. Um, but there were three answers that emerged like substantially more than other answers. Right. So you got hundreds of answers, but three just really stand out if you graph them. And, um, if I, one was, um, to risk more. Mm -hmm. Um, which is interesting in what you're saying, like when we want to avoid death or, or be about safety, like safety is probably not a good governing principle for really anything. I don't think, uh, I, I don't think so. So anyway, but that was one of them. I would risk more. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of them is I would reflect more. Like, I wish I'd have stopped more and been like, think about what's going on here. You know, I would reflect more. And then the, the last one was, um, I wish I'd done more things that would live on after me mm. that I, that I, that I would see, I choke up even saying that, that I would have spent myself on something that will continue to be a blessing to my family and to my community when I'm gone. Yeah. And, um, and I think, man, something in there is something like a thirst for eternal life. Like I want to live on after me legacy something like that um but even more i i just thought man how that relates to what we give our time to what we give our work to what we spend ourselves on and what the collective wisdom of the dying tell us about how we spend these years when we're not in those final days um and i've just thought a lot about those um those reflections um i don't know if you want to i just want to share with you i don't know if you want to say anything about that or speak to that at all I, I do like that. I like to, thinking through that way. And I think that's very important in our culture 
um, which is so production centered, but not necessarily a production of something that leaves a legacy, just like produce whatever I told you you're supposed to produce in this mm -hmm. moment. And it doesn't matter how you feel about it because you have more to produce over here and just keep going, keep going, keep going. And the frenetic pace mm. that that we've been kind of shocked out of in some ways through the pandemic. Yeah, like, it's been a gift. Yeah. It, in some ways it's a gift and for the extroverts of us, it's a little bit of a challenge, you know, like <laughs> me not being with other people in the same room is really, it's hard. And yeah. I'm with my family, but my family is also like all together all the time and my children sometimes probably don't appreciate this <laughs> extra time with their parents yeah i'm sure uh, but there's something lovely about being able to be together as family too which is you know not bad for my family but probably not great for some other people who are separate. Oh, that's 100 percent the case yeah yeah so so it's a it's a very difficult time but it also is shocking us in some ways out of a ridiculous schedule and pace yep. that we expect of ourselves and that's one of the things my students get from being in the dr mm -hmm. like oh that life doesn't have to be scheduled by every minute on the calendar like i could just sit and be for an hour and chat with someone and that's totally okay and it's it's more than just okay it's actually edifying and fruitful in a different kind of way um yeah and so i yeah i mean i think if if i were to want to leave some kind of legacy it would maybe even be in like instilling a way of being as opposed to like a physical thing yep. physical things just go away you know um it'll burn it'll be windswept it'll be yep. um you know lost in a financial collapse or whatever but um you know, if my kids can learn to, um, if, if my kids can accept that they've been blessed and can be a blessing to others, like, I mean, that's been my prayer for my kids all along, mm -hmm. that they would be great in the economy of another kind of kingdom, you know, yep. of another sort of way of, of looking at things, that their greatness wouldn't be determined by this, you know, frenetic production-centered culture but by, um, by being blessed and being a blessing, by a conduit of love, you know. I love it. So as you talk about this season we're going through, um, one of the things that's really, I've just constantly circled back to is the, so I, when I heard this, it just, it just hit me really hard. So the, so quarantine, like etymology of the word is from 40 days. And it is to say, and it is a reference to this 40 days in the wilderness that Jesus spends before he really begins his public ministry and basically goes to the wilderness to like fight the wrestle the devil, basically just be tempted and, and, and without, and we or Christians throughout the world, remember that time, um, in, in the liturgical calendar as before Easter, we have this 40 days of Lent which overlapped with the beginning of this quarantine. And I have been really interested as you, like, as you just talked about the experience of quarantine, if you look back at what you're saying, you're like, stop this frenetic pace. You're back with your family and community. Like you're in many ways, you're fasting, whether you wanted to or not 
you're fasting from those social interactions that you want as an extrovert. You're doing without so many of these things that you're used to. Oh, and by the way, why are we quarantined? Because of death. Because we're afraid of something that's going to kill us. And so there's this reflection on the, the fragility of life and mortality that is, that is literally baked into the season of Lent. Like that's like from dust we come to dust we return is the reflection of Lent. And what has really been powerful to me is to go, man, like Christian, not Christian, whatever, like the globe has been put into, has been given the gift that many Christians have been celebrating for some time is this time of, I'm like, we're in Lent. Like we were given Lent and what new world emerges on the other side of this is yet to be seen. And some of us are terrified and some of us are really excited. And maybe that just has something to do with temperament or faith or hope or whatever, but like something will emerge from this. And, yeah. um, and I, did, I just, as you were talking through that, I was like, oh man, it's like you're, I haven't said this yet, but like you're fleshing it out completely um, as you like say what the, what this has been to us and where it's put us into like a death has been unavoidable. Yeah. It's been the popular conversation now. Yeah. Um, and so we've been, you know, where you go, we avoid this and avoid this and avoid this. I mean, we're still avoiding it kind of very actively, but it is been, it has been made conscious in a way that, yeah, it's a little less avoidable at this mm -hmm. point, you know, when uh, 220,000 people and counting have died of a, a virus in our country, that does put death in the news, puts yep. it on people's minds, and it brings it up as a, as a topic, you know, and I hadn't even thought about, I like the way you, you put that together in terms of quarantine and like a Lenten fasting kind of season and what comes from that. Because I, I really get bothered by the, I want to go back to the way things were. Yeah. That really frustrates me. I think that frustrates me as um, someone who has, for the last 18 years, not lived like everyone else around me is living. Yeah. I mean, my child has um, long-term disabilities, uses a wheelchair, has to be protected on a, in an, any year we would be concerned and protective during flu season and taking him out into public spaces where we are aware and cautious all the time of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so now, obviously all the more, but to the point where we can't let anybody else come into our home, he's doing virtual education, which is a real trip. Let me tell you, um, for him, particularly yeah. because he has to have someone sit with him in order to navigate mm -hmm. that online space and what would typically be like seven different people who come into the classroom on a regular basis to engage with him in various ways is down to a screen and a grandparent typically like sitting with him helping him and so this has been really a hard time for us but just to go back to the way things were doesn't acknowledge that the way the way things were was not great for everyone and what if things could be better? What if instead of just trying to forget this whole mess, we learned from it and did something different going forward? And I do think that will happen. I think that there will be yep. certain habits that got broken that don't get picked back up. Like maybe oh, I don't yeah. want like in 17 activities, you know? I think every one of us could rattle off like yeah. 
yeah, well, this is how this is going to go from now on. Like, yeah, I'm exactly. thank God for this lesson. Right. Or, or like the, this conversation that we're having online, it, I met with people, I meet with people on a regular basis in England now. Yeah. Like this. I have lectures in my class from other countries. Yep. It's easy. It's great. They're accessible. Everybody's like enjoying this kind of connectivity mm -hmm. from people who can't and never or, or couldn't previously share any kind of physical space. But now we're connected in ways because we've become, it, it's become a common habit that even though we're a mile apart or whatever, you know, we're still online talking yep. because it's a safer format. Mm -hmm. I might have a meeting like this later with somebody who's in this building yeah. because this is how we're now accustomed to doing things. And so I don't want to have every meeting for the rest of my life like this. I would love to sit in the room with you at some point and like yep. pull the book off your shelf as opposed to just seeing it sitting over there. <laughs> that would be really fun. Yep. Um, you can come over and we'll play Legos, you know, because yep. I have all these Lego things. So, so love it. I we love could, it. like, I would, I want that, but I also know that by practicing this, it's given me skills that are transferable to some things that I'll be able to do you know, from here on out. And that's a really good thing. But I think there are other practices and things that, that we've learned that maybe won't come to light for a while still. Mm -hmm. I also think that I told somebody the other day, I feel like we want ourselves to be in like mile 20 of the marathon. And it's really possible that we're only in mile 10. Mm. Um, and that scares me. Um, when people just are going to dip out of this race and be like, no, because it, it I don't know, this is going to be hard and long and Americans are not good with the long, hard haul. Like the suffering thing is not something we really, I mean, remember that Advil commercial from a long time ago? I haven't got time for the pain. Mm. <laughs> we don't have time for this. We have to be productive and busy and this is yeah. forcing us not to be. That's it's. Maybe you get the medicine you need. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I think Thank this is a podcast, John. We're <laughs> going to have to do it again. Thank you so much for doing this. If you would, um, before we go, just I want to give you a chance to talk to those that are listening. Um, what other places you want to point them, something you want to tell them to do or ask for, places they can find you if like online or whatever, just. Yeah. Well, I have like the most Googleable name in the world. So there's me, Lindy Davidson. There's like an artist in Australia, Lindy Davidson. And then there's a rabbi in California, Lindy Davidson. So I'm the <laughs> East coast Protestant Lindy Davidson while there's a, a West coast rabbi, Lindy Davidson. Um, L I N D Y D A V I D S O N. But I'm, um, at USF, so you can find me in the Judy Ginshaft Honors College on our website, which is usf.edu backslash honors. And that'll you know introduce you to, to all that's happening here in the Honors College. And, um, and then I would say, um, what else? Oh, and then like it, for end of life stuff, if people are really interested in that, I would really encourage you to look at the conversation project um, which is an initiative that seeks to foster conversations with Pete, with their family, among friends and families about end of life mm -hmm. that help people to be more prepared to become a decision maker. Because the worst thing you want is to have this emergency surprise. You find out 
that you're the next of kin or have been earmarked as the decision maker and you don't know what that person wants. Mm. Um, that's a really difficult place to be in. And so the conversation project seeks to kind of foreground some of those events by giving people openings to have conversations with others. And um, you could just Google the conversation project and their website will come right up. So I would encourage people to look at that um, as a, a resource and, and a way to maybe investigate some more of what we've talked about. Thank you so much. You too. I, I miss talking to you. I'm like her. So for those listening, her and I have sat and done this just in the cafeteria at USF a few times. And I'm like, I'm glad it's getting captured though. I'm oh, getting, well. <laughs> getting it recorded here, but um, cool. Well, till next time. All right. All right. Thank you.